The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, October the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on in today's show, we are going to be looking at some of the political, legal and constitutional implications of the really startling news coming out of the United States over the last 24 hours. So stick with us for that. I'm joined today by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, because we wanted to try to get a handle on what's really happening behind the scenes as we enter what looks like it's going to be the final straight of negotiations on the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. But Dennis, I have to start with another subject because it's an extraordinary day today. Uh, You're a former Washington correspondent for the Irish Times. Donald Trump and Melania Trump announced that they had tested positive for COVID-19 last night. I'm just looking at the the wires over the last few minutes. It's the middle of the afternoon on Friday and uh, uh, they're stating that that Trump has mild symptoms of COVID-19. COVID-19 right now. What do you make of it all? Well, you know, they often talk about an October surprise uh, coming before an American election. And usually these are surprises that are uh, they're constructed, they're deliberate surprises by one side or the other. We've never had a surprise like this, and it just raises so many questions. First of all, obviously, there's the question of what happens to uh, to the campaigns. Uh, Donald Trump, who's been having very much a physical uh, meet the people campaign, he's obviously not going to be able to continue doing that. So if he is able to campaign at all, it'll have to be rather like Joe Biden did for much of it, the kind of basement campaign on Zoom. And then the question is, what can the Biden campaign do? Can Joe Biden, will Joe Biden, for example, have to self-isolate because of having been in that debate with, uh, with Donald Trump? We haven't heard, as we're speaking now, yet from the Biden campaign, what exactly they're going to do. So first of all, there's the whole question about how the campaign goes on. Then there's a question really about how are people going to feel about this? Is this going to suddenly uh, create a big wave of sympathy for Donald Trump, Uh, which you saw with Boris Johnson, when Boris Johnson became ill with coronavirus. But already at that time, the the Johnson government was very popular. You had had this big rise in support in the previous days for the government because people were rallying around the flag in the coronavirus campaign in a way. Uh, And so then uh, there was sympathy for Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson also at that time was much more popular, though, than Donald Trump is. And in the very polarized political atmosphere in the US, I would think that Donald Trump would get an awful lot of sympathy from his own supporters. But I'm not sure too many people beyond that group are going to really feel uh, hugely moved. It's not that anybody wishes a meal, but it's just that I don't think they're going to really change their mind about how they're going to vote because they feel sympathy for President Trump and his family. And as I recall it, I mean, it's a long time ago and it's much earlier in the story of this pandemic um, when Boris Johnson got sick. But there was a certain amount of tut-tutting about the fact that even at that stage, he wasn't quite following the protocols which had been put in place about social distancing and protecting yourself and and things like that. Um, Things are very different now. I'm looking at photographs of what Donald Trump has been up to over the last week or so, uh, surrounded by these entourages of people standing up before tens of thousands of fans, very few or none of them wearing masks or or practicing social distancing. And perhaps uh, a closer parallel might be with Javier 
Bolsonaro in Brazil, who sort of scorned and poo-pooed the threat of coronavirus, but then ended up catching it? Yeah, I think uh, Bolsonaro is a good example uh, because he was much more out there in terms of sneering at it rather than the way that Trump did. At the early stages of the epidemic, Boris Johnson was very uh, lackadaisical and he kind of uh, announced that he had shaken everybody's hand uh, in uh, hospital wards he went to, but he kind of fairly quickly changed. But certainly that was used to some extent uh, against him, uh, you know, after he recovered, that uh, he, you know, it was part of the whole case against the government not taking this thing seriously. And I suppose the other thing what it, uh, that it does in the American campaign is it puts coronavirus back into the centre of the campaign. And every day you're talking about coronavirus is bad for Donald Trump. And so every day that you were talking about something else, almost no matter what it was, then uh, it was a better. So even when you were talking about the, the crazy uh, debate and his crazy performance, even though that wasn't really good for him, it was certainly better than talking about coronavirus. Now nobody will be able to avoid talking about that, connecting very directly the consequences for him, for other people that they see. And as the days go by, you're probably going to hear about more people within that circle who have been affected. And that, again, is just going to dominate the headlines and it's going to reinforce this message that here he was faced with this major challenge and he didn't handle it well. Now, before we turn to Brexit, actually just sticking with coronavirus for a minute, because I was reading one of your, uh, you occasionally write these very evocative London letters for what about what life is like for, for you in, in and around Westminster uh, these days. Um, very nice pen pictures of, of what's happening. There's a great one in the paper today about a, an Italian restaurant, which you, you frequent, and the, the challenges of the faces and the colourful characters uh, who attend. And it's a great way of kind of humanising for us what life is like over there at the moment. And I presume, maybe I'm wrong, but I presume that the the nature of the coronavirus resurgence over the last few weeks and the government's reaction to it and how well that's received or not received must play into everything else that's going on, including the negotiations over Brexit. Yes, it does, because one of the the way in which uh, the, the British government is now tackling this wave of the coronavirus is mainly through local measures rather than national measures. There is, there is a certain number of national measures like the so-called rule of six, which means you can't gather with more than six people either indoors or outdoors, and then that they've introduced a curfew for uh, bars and restaurants all have to close at 10pm. But for about a quarter of the people in England, they're under extra restrictions. So sometimes they can't go and visit their uh, somebody, another household, or they're not allowed to leave their area. And so there, this is there's a whole kind of patchwork of these local lockdowns, which are quite popular among people who are not affected by them because people like and they feel comfortable about, you know, uh, limiting other people's freedom. But they're very unpopular among the people who are affected. Generally speaking, the lockdown measures are, according to the polls, popular and they're especially popular among Conservative voters. But they're very unpopular among Conservative MPs. And partly this is to do with the impact on business. And a lot of people who would be members of Conservative associations would be small business owners. Some of them might be in the hospitality industry. And they can see the impact of some of these restrictions. And then there's also a libertarian strain within parts of the Conservative Party. There's also dislike it. So uh, there's been quite a lot of discontent on the back benches. You had a rebellion this week uh, where Graham Brady, the uh, chairman of the 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbenchers, oddly became the leader of a rebellion against the government where he was demanding more parliamentary scrutiny of these new measures. And basically what they wanted is to have a vote on any new measures that come in. 
And so the government had to compromise, promising them votes on any significant national measures that they introduce. And so I think they will have a bit more scrutiny. But it certainly does affect the mood. It, and again, also, to, you know, rather in parallel with uh, Donald Trump, there is just this sense that this government hasn't got a grip. It's, not, it's been very good at campaigning and winning the election. It hasn't been good at governing. And again, this big challenge of dealing with coronavirus, they've faced the same problems that every country faces, in a way, in trying to tackle it. But there, because partly Boris Johnson has always overpromised and underdelivered. Everybody is very conscious of the fact that they don't have a proper test and trace system running, that it's been farmed out to people who don't necessarily have all that much expertise, but are friends of the government. And it's been outsourced to companies, uh, you know, to do their the tracing and call centers. And just the sense that just they're, they're not really entirely in control of it. And so that all does feed into an atmosphere around the government of it just not being very good. And how then does that impact on, I, I recall a month or two ago, there was a sort of a, a feeling, I don't know if, how much of it was bravado or, or swagger or how much of it was real, that, that, that some people in the, in the Tory party in particular thought that because of the incredible strains and pressures on the economy caused by coronavirus and the pandemic, that, that if anything was a reason to go for broke on the negotiations for the exit from the EU. Just kind of a, you'll take all the pain together and you won't notice it so much because you thought it was mostly the pandemic. It always seemed like a slightly dangerous uh, way of thinking about it to me. But I wonder, is that still there or does the, what is likely to be a very difficult winter for all of us approaches, might that be ameliorated a bit? There certainly uh, has, I think, been a debate within Downing Street, and there are a few sort of factions within the government uh, in terms of what they think is the best approach to the Brexit deal. The deal that they're likely to get is not, it's, a, it's going to be a pretty thin deal. So uh, there's still going to be quite a, an amount of disruption at the borders. They're still expecting to have queues of trucks uh, at Dover and in Kent, even if they get the deal. So the advantages of the deal are fairly modest. The disadvantages of not having it are pretty bad in terms of even more chaos. But there are some within Downing Street, people like uh, Dominic Cummings, Oliver Lewis, who's uh, his main Brexit guy, and uh, David Frost himself to some extent, who have been inclined to say, let's hold out for something, uh, you know, that's a bit more, uh, you know, what we want. Uh, and if necessary, let's go for no deal. And there is also an argument that politically, there are some advantages to no deal. And that actually, if you haven't done very well in the coronavirus, that the way in which you can gen up your own people is through culture wars like uh, singing Rule Britannia at the end of the proms or Churchill statue or hot button issues like trans rights or whatever, and also get back to some kind of conflict with Europe. And if you look at the structure of the Conservative voting coalition, you've got this kind of base of support of around 31-32%, people who just always vote Conservative, no matter what. And then what gets them up to 40% are the people who voted for uh, UKIP in 2015 uh, and these people who were traditional Labour voters in the so-called Red Wall, the North East, the North Midlands, and who, uh, who defected from Labour to the Conservatives. So we're talking really about two million people. And 
this is actually where the battle in British politics is being uh, fought because Keir Starmer has uh, his main advisor uh, is Claire Ainsley, who's written this book about the new working class. And she again is talking all the time and they're honing policies all the time about how to appeal to that particular group. And so it's very similar to, say, the United States, where the Rust Belt and places that we keep talking about in this campaign, like Michigan and Pennsylvania, places that are really not that important uh, numerically and certainly economically. They're not really the future of the country, but nonetheless, these are very important here. So there is some logic to the idea that actually the thing you've got to do is to keep these people on side if you're the Conservative Party. And if what it takes is some kind of culture war, then that might be the thing to do. Uh, against all of that uh, are the facts of the fact that this country is dealing with the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, last week, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, said that the furlough scheme, which has been paying most people, most of people's wages for, uh, you know, since the thing began, that's going to end at the end of October and it'll be replaced by something much less generous, where really instead of paying 80%, that the government would pay 22% of uh, the salary of somebody who's being kept on. And that the, and that means obviously that the employer has to pay a much larger proportions. So we have to say they've got people on part-time hours and so you've got two people and you don't have work for two, you divide the work between the two but you basically top up their wages so they both have a more or less full-time salary. But that's going to cost a lot for the employer. So there's a disincentive for the employer to do that and so you're likely to see mass unemployment uh, towards the second half of this year. All of these coronavirus measures are going to have huge, they're already having huge uh, uh, impact on the hospitality sector events lots of other places. And so you're going to have a pretty rough winter in any case. You've got basic things that happen every year, like flooding, and flood defences never seem to work. And uh, you know, so that's a bit of a, a headache politically and logistically. And so then uh, the idea that you have on top of all of this, the chaos of a disorderly exit from the transition period is something which I think has actually finally persuaded Boris Johnson that actually it is time to go for a deal. And then are those observers who say that the noises, and they are only noises, I think, coming out of uh, coming out of London over the last week or so, are a little bit more positive, a little bit more enthusiastic about about striking a deal than they were heretofore? Yeah, the noises are positive, uh, but in fact, nothing really of substance happened in the uh, negotiating round in Brussels this week. But the noises and the body language and the attitude of the British side was much more positive than it has been. And it's as if, uh, certainly on the European side, I think this, their impression is that something has happened, that the British have decided this week that they're going for a deal. And that's certainly the impression that we get here in uh, London as well, that, uh, that they have decided to go uh, for the next step. If you recall, back in the summer, Boris Johnson had this video meeting with Ursula von der Leyen and the presidents of the other European institutions. And he then at that stage said, look, uh, I do want to deal, but these are my red lines that, you know, I can't go beyond. And they said, OK, we hear you and we're going to try to come up with some approach that will respect your red lines. And so then uh, Michel Barnier subsequently moved the European position on a number of issues, but notably on the issue of state aid or state 
subsidies for businesses, where instead of saying that, uh, as the Europeans had initially demanded, that Britain would have to continue to follow European rules on state aid, even as they change, so this dynamic alignment, as they called, that he's saying, actually, no, you can have your own system and uh, you just tell us what your subsidy rules are going to be. Uh, you would have an independent British regulator of that, and we'd like to know what the terms of that are. And then we have a dispute resolution mechanism between ourselves. And so that, so that was quite a big move. And then after that, each time Barnier met David Frost, he was expecting some kind of reciprocal move, which never came. But what appears to be happening now is that the British are now starting to accept because their initial position was our state aid rules are none of your business. And uh, if we uh, subsidize a company in a way that you think is unfair, then just let's go to some dispute resolution system. But let's not write into the treaty any of these rules about how we subsidize. And so now they seem to have moved from that. And where the crux of the dispute now appears to be is that under normal European, the European system, if you want to subsidize a company, what you have to do is to notify the European Commission in advance before you give them the money or whatever the other help is. And uh, and the British are saying, we don't want to have to tell you in advance what we're going to do. We'll tell you we've done it. And then uh, afterwards, you can then say if you find this within scope or not, and then we kind of work out our uh, arbitration. And so that appears to be uh, the kind of area they're, they're all moving to. And that would seem to me to be an area where, although it's still going to be difficult, you could potentially get some kind of deal. I mean, these deals always end up with a kind of quite substantial grey areas around the around the points of friction, don't they? And a little bit of an agreement for a little bit of, uh, you know, um, just to sort of allow a bit of wiggle room, I, I, I suppose. And of course, that was true of the withdrawal bill. Um, and then the internal markets bill came along and caused consternation. And indeed, the uh, the European Union has uh, has started legal proceedings um, against the UK this week on the basis of it, of it being in breach of the, the withdrawal bill in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Does all that kind of stuff, which seems to have calmed down despite the fact of the, the legal action, does that inflect at all the ability to, to come to a deal? I say this because Naomi O'Leary, our Europe correspondent in a piece in today's Irish Times, talks about how the Brussels side, um, more so than before, really wants to see things nailed down if things are going to be agreed. In other words, there's less trust there. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. That uh, there's no question, but that one of the reasons the internal markets bill was a mistake was because it actually made the price of a deal with Brussels higher because they would have to have things nailed down. Having said that, the the two processes are going on uh, separately. So you have this legal proceeding that the uh, European Union is taking against the British for breaking the uh, withdrawal agreement with the internal market bill. But at the same time, and quite separately and discreet from that, you've got the uh, free trade agreement talks. And for now, those two don't collide. Now, it may be that when you get to the very end of the process, and so you've agreed the terms of a free trade agreement, that at that stage, the Europeans say, OK, but we're not actually going to sign it until you remove these clauses from the bill. Now, happily, for everybody concerned, the bill is taking its time going through the House of Lords. It hasn't uh, actually got there yet. It'll probably 
uh, get there around the middle of October and their lordships have made clear they're taking their time with it. They're going to give it plenty of time to debate and then they can uh, propose amendments and those amendments go back to the commons and then the commons can say, no, we don't want them. They go back to the lords. This is a process called ping pong and then the lords can send it back a second time and that all will take us well into November and possibly longer. So that by the time you're likely to be doing a deal, uh, this bill will not have become law as yet. And so it's quite easy for the British government to say at that stage to say, OK, we accept the Lord's Amendments, which remove these offending articles from the bill and uh, everybody lives happily ever after. There is still a theoretical possibility that the Europeans agree to do a free trade agreement, even if the British government doesn't take those clauses out. I think it's unlikely, but it is a theoretical possibility. And then you have this legal proceeding going on, continuing to go on, uh, you know, in parallel to it. But the point you make with regard to the politics of it, that it's very hard for Europeans to say, we're going to trust you uh, if you've already said you're going to break the agreement we all, we made earlier this year. And in terms of Ireland's input into that, because it strikes me, I mean, you, you say quite rightly that a very thin um, deal is not hugely different from no deal at all. But one way it is significantly different is if the Internal Market Bill presumably then is passed uh, after a no deal and Britain um, uh, says that it has the right essentially to dismantle what Ireland would consider as the key points of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, also, actually, I mean, in fact, there is a big difference in lots of ways uh, between no deal and a thin deal. And one of the differences is that you would have no tariffs and no quotas, which would mean, for example, that if you did implement the Northern Ireland Protocol, there's an awful lot of the trouble in terms of friction on the, you know, the border in the Irish Sea would be removed just by virtue of the fact that uh, you, you don't have tariffs and you don't have to worry about that. And so it's easier to solve the problems that are within it. But Certainly, that is also the case that, first of all, what you would have is uh, the possibility of Britain deciding it was going to, A, pass the Internal Market Bill, but also actually implement the protocol in a way which is uh, unacceptable to the Europeans. And so then you get into the situation where the Europeans say these checks that you've imposed, such as they are, don't protect the single market. They don't protect us from goods coming in to Ireland and consequently into the single market. And so we're going to have to find another way of protecting ourselves from that. And there are two other ways if the Europeans are really serious about protecting the rest of the single market. One is to find some way of checking away from the border, perhaps, but some, but essentially you are trying to put in the controls between North and South, whatever way you manage to do it, which clearly is very difficult. It's very difficult to be effective. It's politically uh, in, and in all kinds of other ways, a very hard thing to do. And then another option, of course, would be that you effectively put a border or some kind of border between Ireland and the rest of the European Union, so that you check goods coming from Ireland in there, or that you have some kind of process. That's something which the Irish government would is utterly horrified at the thought of, because it effectively see, means that we become second-class members of the single market, and for a country that depends so much on export and on free trade, it would be a, you know it would be a huge blow. And so, so I think that both of those are real dangers if uh, if you have no deal, uh, and it's you know, and and Ireland would then be squeezed in a really horrible position of having to uh, reassure our European partners that we're 
protecting their single market and our single market, and then also trying to deal with the British in such a way that doesn't exacerbate tensions, because obviously tensions with London are not in Dublin's interest, but also any tensions of that nature can exacerbate tensions in Northern Ireland, which again is in nobody's interest. And finally, Dennis, there always needs to be a clock ticking ever louder when when these processes are going on. Um, the, the British during the summer were saying that that clock was a countdown to the middle of October, about two weeks' time, when there's a major EU summit. And nobody seems to accept that that's the timetable or the deadline anymore, which is fortunate, I suppose, because it's coming upon us very quickly. What is the deadline? And is there is one of these famous tunnels, does that need to be entered at some point in the final person? When when does the tunnel need to happen? Well, the deadlines are a bit like, you know, when you set your alarm clock and you set it sort of uh, a few times. So you set it for 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock. And, you know, you, and so that, uh, that you've got a number of options. And obviously the earliest one is the one that Boris Johnson set, which is we need to have a clear picture of where it's going by the 15th of October. Otherwise, we should just start preparing for or focusing on no deal. Michel Barnier has said it really has to be done by October 31st so that we can get everything uh, done properly. Other people say, well, actually, early November is fine because the European institutions always manage. I mean, if you think back to the withdrawal agreement, all these procedures that were going to take forever in the European Parliament, they just managed to arrange a sitting and they did them. You know, so so I think you can do all of this stuff actually relatively quickly. So the only real deadline is the 31st of December. But I do think that, uh, you know, uh, it's it, it usually these things usually go longer rather than shorter. So I would say we're talking November rather than October, possibly the first half of November. That would uh, give everybody a certain amount of comfort. And where the tunnel is concerned, uh, Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen are having a call on Saturday. And that, as I understand it, is not really going to be necessarily about going into a tunnel, but it will be about another round of negotiations. And that round of negotiations would try to get uh, the two sides close enough that if the idea, if they go into the tunnel, and what the tunnel means really is that the negotiators uh, go into this closed kind of series of negotiations where they don't talk to anyone, they don't talk to the media, they don't talk to the member state governments, and uh, this thing is completely sealed, and they then try to work out all of the differences. And then at the end of this process, they have to go back, obviously, to their principles and say, will this do, or, or will that do? And uh, and then they, they hope to get a deal. But to get to, to go into that tunnel, the Europeans always say there's no point in going into a tunnel unless you can see some light at the end of it. And so that really means that they have to get a bit closer than they are now before they go into that tunnel. So what you might find is that you get uh, von der Leyen and Johnson to agree tomorrow that there will be a further round of talks. This week's was supposed to be the last. And that, that then leading up to the European summit will allow uh, Barnier to say we are making progress. And so I think we should enter an intensive period of negotiations. The Europeans hate the word tunnel. They don't ever use it. They sometimes talk about submarines, but one way or another, they don't like it. And so, um, you know, and so that then they, uh, they would go into this intensive period and then, uh, try to find a deal. One of the utilities in a way of the internal market bill is that it has, uh, changed the atmosphere in uh, it's, it's created a, a sort of a smokescreen which 
uh, because it basically created all these phony obstacles because they sort of they said the Europeans were going to impose a food blockade on Northern Ireland, which they never were. But having not imposed it, they can now kind of lift it. And uh, and so, so there are all kinds of threats which were never made, which can then be lifted. And so Boris Johnson could be in a position to say, you know, our European friends have seen reason. And as a result of this, these clauses, which were always only a safety net, uh, are no longer necessary. And so that also then is a bit of a smokescreen for perhaps doing a deal and making a bit of a retreat. Dennis, thanks for joining us as always and have a lovely weekend. Now, as already mentioned, uh, last night the news broke that uh, President Donald Trump and his wife Melania Trump had both been uh, tested and found positive for COVID-19. That obviously opens up a range of vistas for what's going to happen in the next four weeks, the final stretch of the election campaign. Um, It also raises perhaps even deeper questions about what might happen should coronavirus be very serious for Donald Trump. One doesn't want to be ghoulish about any of these things, but you have to say that he is, uh, in some respects at least, in a high-risk category. And in any case, Right through this campaign, there's always it seemed to me be a be a question that um, Joe Biden is the oldest uh, presidential candidate in the history of the United States, and I think I'm right in saying that Donald Trump is the second oldest. So you don't need to be a qualified actuary to know that there might be some questions which might arise about about health and mortality and things like that. And then they beg questions about what happens in the election itself. Uh, can it take place in the form which we expected? To answer those questions, I hope, uh, I'm joined by Professor Eric S. Heberleg. He's Professor of Political Science and Political Administration at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Uh, Eric, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, let's let's start with a few questions. I'll be a couple of these ones I think I know the answer to. One pertains to what happens to a sitting president when he's in power and he becomes um, so ill or in, in some other way incapacitated. You had the 25th Amendment, which deals with that case, yeah? Yes. Well, the, the vice president is, is there even before the 25th Amendment to take over when, when the president can't do the, the job. Uh, but since the 25th Amendment, we have a procedure where the, the president, if he's temporarily incapacitated, such as going into surgery, can basically turn over power sem- temporarily to the, the vice president. So um, we're hoping that, as in most instances, the president's case is, is mild and those issues don't come to the fore. But we have a procedure in place should uh, serious uh, health consequences ensue. And that procedure, I think, has been applied on a number of occasions since uh, since the early 1960s, at least. Yeah, um, we, we've had presidents who have had surgeries, who have um, turned over power to the vice president for the, the hours they needed to recover. So um, it, it's certainly a newsworthy event, but from a governing perspective, it's, it's not terribly um, serious or um, unheard of. Well, then what's more unclear to me is what would happen if a candidate of one of the major parties in a presidential election were to become so ill as to be incapacitated and not to be able to actually continue to run for election, or indeed in an extreme case, perhaps to, to die? We have no precedent for this, so we'll be finding it out over the next few weeks. I think the short answer is that Congress has the responsibility for scheduling federal elections, And since 1845, uh, they've scheduled it for the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And I would not anticipate Congress changing the date of the election um, when we're so close upon it. 
Um, so I think it's all systems are, are go for the normal conduct of the election. Um, your, your viewers probably are, are aware that um, a number of states have already started early voting in the United States. So the election is really already underway um, and the, the election just proceeds as it is. If the president cannot physically campaign, uh, he's still running his advertisements. He can still have surrogates speak on his behalf. Um, and the Biden campaign will have to decide whether it, it kind of backs off uh, out of um, deference to the president's inability to campaign or how they adjust their own campaigning. Although it seems to me, and I'm not sure if you're agree- you would agree, that um Joe Biden has been running a relatively low-key campaign. He hasn't been running around holding huge rallies, partly because of the health situation at the moment. Um, Donald Trump has been quite different and quite interesting example, even to look at what his schedule was planned to be for today. It was really busy. Um, and now, obviously, it's not busy anymore. So in a way, the effect of this is to freeze the campaign at this particular moment in time. And given that Biden, currently, according to nearly all the polls, has a comfortable lead, that benefits him more than it does Donald Trump. Yeah, the, the Trump campaign is really based on uh, its rallies as it was in in 2016. So at the very least, this takes the president out of circulation for rallies for at least two weeks. Um, But I think more importantly, it undercuts really one of the primary messages of the Trump campaign and governing strategy since the beginning of the virus, which is this is not terribly serious, go on about your business. Well, if if the president is, Uh, relegated to the White House because of the virus, that makes it much harder for him to claim that the rest of us should go about our our normal business. And it certainly plays into uh, one of Biden's central arguments, which was that the president didn't take this seriously enough, didn't coordinate an effective enough uh, national response. And um, the commercials that Biden is already playing about the ads, he doesn't really need to change those those ads. Uh, This just um, makes those ads and the message all the more salient to the American public um, that Biden can really take the high road here and wish the president the best and uh, continue with the advertising he's already running. And people will naturally make the link between Biden's previous criticisms and the current situation. And it's not just his criticisms. We know, again, from the polling that uh, people don't think that Donald Trump did a good job. His numbers on his handling of the pandemic are very bad. And we've seen in a number of instances, most recently, the first debate earlier this week, that Donald Trump was not keen to talk about um, COVID-19 and the coronavirus in any great depth. He, he wanted to switch the subject to other subjects. And now he's not going to be able to do that at all because it's right at the centre of this campaign. No, um, it, it certainly makes the issue impossible for him to get away from. And it, it raises the importance of the issue, which was already extremely important for the American public, that, um, you know, they've rated Trump's uh, performance lower on the coronavirus than other elements, particularly the state of the economy. So one of Trump's strategies has been to try to refocus people's attention on issues where he's rated better than on the, the virus. Well, if the virus is, is now the big, perhaps the only issue, that means more people are going to make their decision on voting based on their evaluation of him on the virus than on the economy or other things in which they might view him more favorably. So the fact that he 
the president is already behind and more people are likely to evaluate him on this issue on which he's weak makes it um, very, very difficult for him to, to catch up. So it's definitely, I think it's fair to say it's 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 bad. It's another blow blow for his campaign. But let me come back to that question I asked earlier. And I, I don't know; it may seem in bad taste, but I don't think it is. This is a this is a dangerous disease which we know has has killed hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of people, uh, more than a million people around the world. What would happen if an American candidate for president were to die? in the two weeks before an election took place, or indeed two days before an election took place. What does the American Constitution and American law say about that? Uh, the American Constitution says nothing about it other than that the vice president would take over as president. Uh, now, the, the political parties themselves have rules as to what happens if their uh, candidates are, are incapacitated. At, at this state of the race, um, Vice President Trump would become the Republicans' uh, candidate. They really don't have time to to, to go to, to plan B to, to nominate an alternative at this point. But in theory, at least, I mean, I think you're quite right, but in theory, at least, they have the right to nominate whoever they see fit because they're the Republican Party. It doesn't have to be Mike Pence. But in practical terms, it would have to be Mike Pence. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a procedure for, for nominating candidates uh, if their candidate is incapacitated. Um, but that takes time to do. And at the stage we are, um, you know, and I, I don't think they'd have a reason to switch to anyone else other than Mike Pence to begin with. And if there is a, a different name ends up on the top of the, t- the ballot paper than the name that was on the ballot paper that, as you said yourself, I think millions of people have already voted. Um, does, the, does that leave the situation open to legal challenge in any way? Oh, I, I presume so. But yeah, as, as you pointed out, the, the ballots are, are printed. Um, so there's nothing that can be done about that at this point. Other than, you know, again, this is a totally hypothetical situation. The, the party announcing that, well, a vote for Trump would really mean a vote for somebody else. I mean, that has happened in the United States in, say, Senate races um, when the senator has died shortly before an election. But uh, again, that's a, those are based on state laws. And here we're dealing with a presidential race where, you know, 50 different state laws um, aren't, aren't going to um, line up with the, the situation at hand. And we do have to remember as well, don't we, that um, the American people don't vote directly for their president. They vote for electors um, to an electoral college. Um, and those electors are are bound to large degree by the laws of their own states in terms of in terms of following the directions of the of the voters. And there are various rules that vary from state to state. Is there any possibility at all that it, that that could end up being thrown into confusion or disarray? Uh, less so now than uh, previous elections. The Supreme Court just had a decision this summer that said that electors basically have to follow the, the if their state law says that they have to vote based on the popular vote in their state, that they are legally bound to do that. Um, so if um, basically the way it works in the United States is that um, all if, if the state's voters vote for the candidate of a particular party, all of the state's electors are awarded to the candidate of, of that party. Um, so even if Donald Trump were, were to uh, pass away prior to the election, it would if, if the Trump-Pence ticket won North Carolina, North Carolina's electors would be pledged to the Trump-Pence ticket and they would 
vote in the Electoral College for the, uh, the Republican candidates. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. So. You're not too worried. My inner nerd forces me to point out that there are two states in which that works slightly differently, but that is generally the rule across, across all the other states. Yeah, to two states award electors by congressional district uh, rather than statewide. To get back to the campaign then, it, it seems very likely that um, the next debate, which was due to be a town hall style debate in, in, in two weeks' time, um, won't take place, certainly won't take place in exactly two weeks' time because President Trump will either still be in quarantine or barely emerging from it. I can't see that that's, that's realistically an option. Uh, there was a lot of comment about the quality of the debate, which happened earlier this week. Um, there was even some talk that, that, that the second and third debates shouldn't go ahead because the first one was so bad. It seems quite possible we might see no more debates this time. It's possible we'll see no more debates. Um, it's possible they move the town hall format uh, that was to be in two weeks um, or 13 days, which is just outside of or just inside the 14 day quarantine period. Um, there was a third debate scheduled uh, the following week. They might move the town hall format to that final week and have two debates. They might reschedule. Um, at this point, it's too early to, to tell. Certainly, those conversations will be held. There has been a lot of talk during this election campaign, primarily from Donald Trump himself, about the um, the legitimacy of the election process, whether it can be trusted, uh, the fact that uh, mail-in ballots and absentee ballots, which are obviously going to form a, a much larger part of the election this year, can't be trusted. All those statements have been made with really very little evidence to support them, it, it should be said. There, is, there isn't much evidence of mass fraud in, in any way in American elections, contrary to what Donald Trump has said. But it has still become part of the agenda because he is the president and he's put it on the agenda. Um, do those questions of legitimacy become even more heated, do you think, as as we look forward to, a, to a, a campaign which has been, I suppose, heightened even more by the events of the last 24 hours? Well, I certainly think that's a, a risk. If, if the president's already saying there's a number of problems with the validity of the election and then he says, well, I wasn't able to campaign because of this virus, we should push it back or we should do something else. Um, I certainly think his supporters have shown their willingness to um, agree and parrot whatever he says, that that's just one more uh, uncertainty to, to throw into the mix here. Um, and again, given that this is federal law, that the election is held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday, um, and we don't have the capacity to, to change it, um, uh, that just sets us up for a big mess uh, uh, on November 3rd if uh, the president is is using that as a rationale for his supporters to um, object to the results. What does a big mess look like in that regard? <laughs> um, I, I think it largely depends on how other Republican officials react, particularly Mitch McConnell, the um, majority leader of the Senate, and Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House of Representatives. If they stand up and say uh, the election was conducted uh, uh, legitimately, um, the votes are, are counted and they're accurate and the results are what they are. And should the votes show that Donald Trump lost and they say we lost, it's over. Um, I, I think that won't go the whole way in um, counteracting the president's objections. But I, I think it's, it's a necessary condition for people to, or Republicans in particular, to accept the results of the election in a peaceful way. 
and that what that effectively would mean that the, the the establishment Republican Party, the establishment Republican Party leaders, in a way, would finally be doing what some people have called on them to do for years and breaking with Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, the the risk in that scenario is that they haven't shown a lot of precedent over the last four years in standing up for uh, traditional norms or the, the rule of law or even the the powers of their own institutions in our checks and balances system in in, uh, in standing up to the president. Um, but I, I think they would see here that there is long-term risk to the, the credibility of, of their party if the, the votes are, are clear. Um, so, but, but that's one of the great uncertainties about how this is all going to unfold. I am sure uh, Senator McConnell and uh, Representative McCarthy have been thinking about what they would do in that type of scenario. A final question to you. There's um, The word unprecedented is used a bit too much these days for my liking. Everything seems to be unprecedented. But this does seem to me to be an unprecedented moment in American political history, going back more than two centuries now, both in the, the nature and the character of the, the president himself and the way he deports himself in the, in, in the office, and then just the never-ending succession of scandal and drama and catastrophe uh, that just seems to follow him. In this case, it is literally true that we have, have never had an instance like this in, in American history. Um, so all, all the other uh, events, uh, you could say, are, are really un, unusual. No one's done them before. Um, but yeah, we, we have not had this before. We, we are are rolling with it, which is pretty much all you can do. Yeah, keep your seatbelts on. We'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Erikus Heberlig, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. My pleasure. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. If you would like to support this podcast and the journalism that we do at the Irish Times, please do go to irishtimes.com slash inside. And if you haven't done so already, sign up for unlimited access to the Irish Times. Uh, Using that particular address, irishtimes.com slash inside, allows us to know how many of our subscribers are also listeners to this podcast, which is good for the podcast. And indeed, if you are a podcast listener, uh, listener to podcasts of any sort, you might be particularly interested in our current offer of a free pair of Sennheiser wireless headphones if you purchase a premium, a weekend or a complete subscription. All the information about that is at irishtimes.com inside. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're always very pleased to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 